You are listening to the Manos Accelerator podcast in partnership with Google Launchpad. We interview rockstar entrepreneurs who share their exact formulas for success in customer acquisition, growth hacking, fundraising, or scaling a company. And I'm your host, Juan Felipe Campos. Okay, Manos Nation, remember, for every episode, there's a giveaway of digital goods or resources from our partners that other people would normally pay for. To enter the giveaway, subscribe to the Manos podcast on iTunes now, and then message the word Manos to m.me forward slash Manos Accelerator. Again, that's Manos to the website m.me forward slash Manos Accelerator to prove it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Manos Accelerator podcast. We have a special guest today. Today, I am here with... Etienne Defarge. Etienne, what do you do? What are you working on? Uh, I um, happily uh, retired from full-time work, but I'm still very active. I sit, on, I sit on half a dozen boards, some of them for profit, some of them non-for-profit, a couple of healthcare companies, uh, France's number one chef, my alma mater, which is a French national school of aeronautics, a couple of startups in robotics and artificial intelligence here in the Valley. And uh, I'm the chairman of the uh, Harvard Business School Alumni Angels, and therefore very active in the early stage company, uh, angel investing space, and I've just finished writing a book called Untangling the USA. Please tell us about that book, Etienne. Okay, the book starts with uh, the following question. What could possibly Tom Brady, Michael Lewis, and Donald Trump have in common? The answer is complexity. You see, Tom Brady plays the most complex ball game in the planet. And of course, he reached the pinnacle of it. And the book actually starts with a scene from his first playoff game, played in a blizzard snowstorm in Foxborough Stadium, where thanks to the application of a very cumbersome rule called the Tuck Rule, he and the Patriots defeated our Bay Area Oakland Raiders uh, in a game that Raider Nation still talked about. Michael Lewis uh, explains complexity. He is the best-selling author of, uh, for immigrants like me who are challenged for American sports money ball and also the blind size is thanks to him that can understand American football. He also wrote the best account of financial crisis. It's called The Big Short. Uh, it's probably the example on how to decorticate complexity and deliver it in understandable chunks for the average reader like me. And then there's Donald Trump. Everybody remembers when talking about healthcare, Donald Trump saying, who knew healthcare could be so complicated? And so <laughs> that's the introduction to the book. And uh, I start with sports because sports is easy, it's comforting. Uh, and, you know, innocently with observations about the tuck rule and Brady's game. And also when I landed here and I was 21 to study for my master's at Berkeley, my roommates introduced me to baseball. And after a pleasant game, which I didn't understand much, but except the local A's won, the next day I had to fend off a couple of pages of statistics in the local newspaper. And I thought, wow, I'm only studying for a master. You need a PhD to understand these sports. And of course, as we've known for the last month, the rest of the planet plays soccer. Four <laughs> lines, put the ball between two goalposts, don't kill anybody. Very simple. That's where a billion people watch a soccer World Cup final, uh, which is much more, of course, than any sports event here could do. 
So sure. it's an easy way, uh, and you know, sports have no consequence. Uh, if anything gives us more animated discussion Monday morning at the coffee bar or at work when we have a drink, um, you know, but it's one sign that we Americans tend to do things in a much more complex way than needs be. And of course, in sports, it's fun. It's like a puzzle to be solved. But what if this complexity affected the way we treat ourselves, the way we take care of our health, the way we manage our finances, the way we manage big chunks of our industry? Would that be so entertaining? Uh, I guess not. And I can say it literally cost us trillions of dollars. And case example number one, which I, is the second chapter of my book, is healthcare. Healthcare, by the way, we spend $10,000 per capita. Uh, that's a lot of money. That means $3.3 trillion last time we checked, and it's going up. Oh, wow. That wow. is, by the way, more than any GDP, not healthcare, whole GDP of the planet, except us, China, Japan, and Germany. It's getting close to Germany. And what do we get? Now, for comparison, developed nations with high degree of societal comforts, like uh, Germany, $5,300 per capita. France, $4,400 per capita. Japan, $4,100 per capita. 40% of what we spend. And what does that buy us? Well, not much. When it comes to outcome, uh, infant mortality, diseases, life expectancy, we actually not even top of the heap. We're like middle performers. Like uh, on the uh, 2016, the latest statistics uh, we have from a number of organizations, uh, the average Japanese gets to live 84 years. What about the US? Oh, wow. It's a list of 100 countries. Where are we? Well, we're 27th at 79 years. Five years less than the Japanese after spending two and a half times per capita what they spend. And where are we? Well, we're between Chile and the Czech Republic. I mean, okay, these are not bad countries, but is that what we aspire to? And there are a number of reasons why healthcare is so expensive. The complexity is any part of it. We have the private sector and not-for-profit, but private entities and federal, state, and local government intertwined like you wouldn't believe. Myriads of interactions. We spend more on administrative spending in healthcare than the whole of the United Kingdom spends on healthcare. Just paperwork, oh, wow. just admin. And by the way, lots of paperwork because we have never been able to get any IT effort to solve the fact that when it comes to healthcare and our information docs, it's essentially at best electronic faxes, you know, big expensive electronic health record system that cannot talk to each other. So if you go from one hospital to the other, the fax or the PDF start flowing. Uh, it's a bad situation. If you're a veteran and you come back from a tour in Afghanistan, for example, and you happen to be close to Medicare age, you might be enrolled in three different programs of insurance. Medicare, Medicaid, if you don't have money to come, and the veterans one. I mean, unbelievable. And everybody knows, even if you have good coverage, that to choose the right plan for your family with 
understanding the deductibles, understand the patient pay after insurance, understand which hospital's network, which one is not. Even if you had a crystal ball and you could decide exactly when you're gonna be sick, when your son or daughter is gonna be sick, you still would have a hard time to optimizing it. Not having a crystal ball makes this a very, very difficult proposition. And those are for the people who have insurance. Remember, Otto von Bismarck gave universal insurance to his good Prussian and German people in 1883. Now, that's not a typo. That's a full 127 years before Obamacare. And everybody in Europe and in Japan has had universal health care since at least the end of World War II. Uh, us, even with Obamacare, which is under constant attack, and which, by the way, is very complex in itself with the private exchange and whatnot, uh, we still have 25 to 30 million people without insurance, which, by the way, cost us a lot of money because when they're ill, instead of seeing their, basically the GP or uh, you know regular doctor and do a lot of preventive medicine, a lot of checkups, they wait till they're sick and they go uh, onto the emergency room. And on the emergency room, what you have? You have a physician that's trained uh, to save lives. Because, yeah, he might get your son if you have no insurance who hurt his ankle, but he might have saved the life of a, a motorcyclist who crashed his motorcycle. And so this sure. is a well-trained physician that cost a lot of money. And yet, if you have no insurance, because hospitals are legally obliged to treat you if you show an emergency room, you essentially uh, are going to use the emergency room like a general practitioner. Uh, and it's going to be very costly for a system. So there are a number of reasons. By the way, healthcare is not the only area uh, where uh, we spend a lot of money. I mean, uh, think about uh, regulations that protect us against uh, damage to environment, to the rivers, to the water we drink, to the air we pollute. There are a lot of them, and they're very complex. Uh, cafe standards for cars, a di different cafe standards for different models. So. If you have a pickup truck or Toyota Corolla, oh, really? you don't pay. No, it's the same. It's different for footprint. Yeah. And is that like managing inputs? Well, for example, to get out of that, a simple gasoline or carbon tax, which has been advocated by people on both sides of the political aisle, uh, sure, would sure. help us, you know, put a price on this pollution and then let the market decide. You know, these are the type of reforms we need. And unfortunately, uh, in this day and age, we're far from doing that. Uh, of course, uh, finance is uh, not only integral part of complexity, but it's a powerful uh, generator of complexity. Unless you're in finance or fintech, uh, terms like securitization, swaps, dark pools, shadow panging, they're not going to mean anything to you. But these are enormous space, managing trillions of dollars where complexity and its twin brother, opacity, reign supreme. Uh, and uh, there's a whole community of folks who make good money on that until the next crisis. And when the crisis hit, which they do at regular intervals, early 90s with uh, the savings and loan, uh, early the turn of the century, and of course 2008, then suddenly we realize we have to bail these guys out because otherwise the whole economy is going to collapse. So... Uh, the joke's on us, you know, when it comes to finance and the music stops 
and thinks uh, the excessive complexity, uh, the chicken come to roost, the bill is basically taken by everybody. So it's like a, sure. a zero-sum game with 99% of the folks left holding the can. Uh, yet, I mean, I, I go on and go on in the book, taxation, obviously. You know, most countries in the world, the tax is automatic. Basically, they have, which by the way we do. The government or state, the federal, they have all the for, required forms, you know. They, you get W-2, it's transmitted to the federal and state authorities. You get your savings form, W-4, same deal. Uh, so in most countries, from Europe to Japan, you get a bill from the tax authorities. And it's simple, you check it, and if you don't like it, you can complain, and then you have some type of arbitrage we discussed. But it is here, I mean, you know, even if you have a modest life of income, you need somebody to help you. It's so complex. Uh, or politics, of course, are very complex. Our way of legislating is very complex, uh, principally in this hyper-partisan age, where basically partisanship means that uh, a given party needs to get uh, 51% of the votes through only their members, which means the extreme members of that party can extract a lot. And it usually comes from appendices to law that add complexity and pile complexity on top of complexity as exchange for the handful of votes that the leaders need to pass a law. Whereas in the past, where law legislating was done in the middle, uh, you know, you had pragmatic centrists uh, that fashioned compromise that were long on practicality and short on complexity. So then in the book, I step back and I say, well, wait a second. Uh, complexity is not in our DNA. Like, if you look at our Constitution, it's a model of simplicity. Uh, the, the American Constitution, I did a little research on that, I'll come back in a second, promulgated in 1787, two years before the French Revolution, and we still have it. It still reigns supreme in its elegant simplicity. The French, for example, had their first constitution at their first revolution, 1789. Today, already at their 16th constitution, where all is sailing supreme. Yeah, they keep changing all the time, and every time it's more complex. Um, uh, In my book, I um, quote a famous uh, long ancestor of mine, uh, called Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote a definite account in 1835 about American democracy. And for example, I'm going to read one thing he says. When he looked at the very tough separation of powers between the federal powers and the state powers, a topic that's very much of actuality, he could have written that yesterday. And he says yeah. about our Constitution, the attributes of the federal government were defined carefully as it was said that everything that was not mentioned in these definitions of the Constitution belonged to the state government. This way, the common rule was that of the state governments. The federal government was the exception. So that makes things, by definition, extremely simple. Um, And think about it today, for example, we have this debate on immigration and uh, a federal government that's trying to dictate some very strong anti-immigration nativist policies. If we get close to the Constitution, California could say, well, we won't have any of that. I mean, we actually welcome immigrants. Our economy couldn't work without them. And we're going to do it our own way and let, you know, whatever states wants to do it, 
the current administration's way, follow that. Uh, so we may want to come back to that original simplicity uh, of, you know, the state rules themselves, and then at the top you have a few layers by exception uh, that determine the federal powers. And, you know, this is an example of how simplicity can really help us uh, in a big way. Uh, in the book, I mentioned a few other things. We took inventions from other countries, like the railroad in Great Britain or the automobile in uh, Germany. And thanks to the genius of our first industrialists, we, you know, the Leland Stanford, who created the first transcontinental, moving from Sacramento all the way to Utah through the Sierras and the Rockies, the Henry Fords, um, to, we made things that had been started by other countries simpler, cheaper, better, and a much bigger scale. Uh, even uh, legislating, uh, when it comes to finance after the, the big depression, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Glass-Steagall that separated commercial banking, which is support by the government, commercial retailing, insured by the federal government, and everything else that was speculative. It was called Glass-Steagall. It was 14 pages or 13 pages. Uh, okay. To give you an idea, Bounty Frank, which is already under attack by the current administration, was like several hundred pages long. Uh, and you can go on. Uh, we won the Cold War uh, because the basic idea of free markets is inherently simpler than central planning complexity. And it's much better to let a market do their things as opposed to try to second-guess the outcome through algorithm. So, and then I conclude the book in two ways. First, how did we get to this complexity? And this is recent. It's about the last 30 years. When I first came to the US in the early 80s, uh, a lot of things uh, were a lot simpler uh, than they were where I came from in Europe. Today, that would not be the case. And of course, the main culprits are uh, the polarization of our politics, the increased role of finance and everything, uh, globalization has not made things simpler. Um, we also have this a little more challenging, but uh, we don't have apprenticeship programs for people who want to work in manufacturing, in uh, other trades, uh, as opposed to we have a college for all mentality that is very laudable and is a nice aspiration, but when it comes to preparing people for a workforce, does not necessarily work perfectly. And then finally, uh, we're very insulated. Uh, only about 40% of Americans have a passport, but very few don't use them. Most travel in this country is done by avid social travelers and business people and looking at State Department data and so forth. It comes down to about 5%. So we have 5% of our population that travels actively. So the book concludes by basically uh, offering solutions that would help us uh, the main theme is de-entangle this complexity of interactions between the government, which is federal, and 50 states, and the private sector. And have the government be in charge uh, of our safety, physically, safety, economically, and healthcare. Uh, and then let the private sector do the rest. The private sector excels at most things, the private sector is not good at taking care of those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, uh, at those who, 
who can't fend for themselves and those who don't have health care. Let the government do that and ensure, as I say, economic and physical safety for everyone. But then let the okay. government stop and let basically the private sector take care of the rest. I mean, the example of carbon tax is just that. Well, we know that uh, oil and gas and coal extract the coal in our societies through pollution, through national security, sometimes in two wars. The carbon tax will put a price to that. And then we let the consumer decide. So if some states, some people want to go renewables, let them. If others want to continue oil and gas and pay the carbon tax, fine. And by the way, the carbon tax, we can redistribute as a dividend to all our citizens. In healthcare, uh, I would propose uh, what I call a basic Medicare for all. Not a single payer, because we do have a thriving sector in healthcare that adds a lot of value. But I would take our Medicare today, which is pretty good, and I would create simpler, less expensive, and less generous Medicare going down by tranche of age. So if you went below 65 to, let's say, 50, you'd have something like, it would be a little less generous. And then all the way down to 26 years of age, uh, where it would be a basic, basically a, a, a basic plan that ensures you if you have a, a catastrophic accident. And sure, sure. the private sector uh, could focus on ensuring those who have jobs and uh, want their company to do that. Uh, it would no longer be tax deductible because that's very costly for the governor. Uh, and it would provide a lot of supplemental plans. So if you want to supplement your basic Medicare, you can use an advantage plan. That way, we would use both the strength of our private sector and the government, but we'll also keep them much more separate than they are today. Uh, finance, same deal. Um, if we don't go back to something as simple as Glass-Steagall, a number of very... Uh, astute and uh, informed folks like Neil Kokari, who is the president of Minnesota Feds, have required very uh, significantly higher level of equity uh, to protect banks against meltdowns. Uh, other folks, several Nobel Prize, have proposed a transaction tax. Transaction tax, which would be very small, would not affect Warren Buffett, but it would prevent uh, flash trading, for example, which has absolutely no value to the economy and possibly hurts those investors who don't have access to these expensive uh, algorithm and computer mechanism. And so, again, simple mechanism that would basically send a message like, you know, uh, everybody does what they want, but if we do uh, frivolous type activities that add nothing to economy and just essentially uh, gains, uh, well, uh, we're not, the governor's not going to provide insurance in case they have an accident, and there might even be a little tax. So, in essence, that's the book, and uh, I thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. No, it's wonderful. Etienne, thank you so much for sharing this. I The way I would position this essentially is you have a brilliant mind. You've spent a lot of time thinking about these different sectors, such as healthcare, energy, finance, government, and you're looking at the complexity of it, which is the first part of the subtitle, essentially the cost of complexity. And then you're moving over to what can be done about it, which is essentially the, the title of the book, Untangling the USA. So the full title for the listeners is Untangling the USA, the cost of complexity and what can be done about it. And so essentially this same 
um, superpower of yours has been deployed on the business front. You're a successful business person, you're an active investor, and you help lead a group of other investors that look to you for direction in fundraising and in where to allocate funds. So let's move over to that part of the conversation. Etienne, you have a great pulse on fundraising, especially with your experience with the Harvard Angels. Can you demystify for us a little bit of exactly what you've done with the book, but now in terms of fundraising, kind of a little bit of the complexity and then ultimately the solution for our listeners who have almost no experience with fundraising for them to really understand kind of the pulse that you have on the ecosystem right now for fundraisers. Yeah, the complexity uh, comes today in fundraising from the embarrassment of riches we have. Uh, you've all seen studies that show that VC activity in terms of dollars last year was the highest one on record since the dot-com boom. I'm not even talking the, the go-go days of 2006, 2007. Literally since the dot-com boom. Uh, we uh, have moved in a very few years from 20, 25 billion a year in VC investing to well over 50. Uh, so that creates an embarrassment of riches. That also means valuations tend to creep up because uh, in a nutshell, and that's good news for entrepreneur, slightly less so for angel investors is uh, there's never been so much money chasing startup, startup companies. And the startup companies, of course, are there a lot more than they were five years ago, but the growth in quality early stage companies has not quite followed the explosion of available money to finance them. And so, uh, this is something that we uh, look at, and uh, you know, uh, investment can be very complex, and I certainly do not claim to be an expert at it. Uh, I, I have a group of friends, and uh, we try to do the best we can for our members, but it's a complex topic. However, you can make it simple if you set for yourself some relatively simple guidelines. You don't want to call them rules, because the minute you call them rules, you find this extraordinary company, everybody wants to invest it, and it doesn't meet one or two guidelines. And so I'll give you some examples of the guidelines I use for myself and for the group. Uh, first, angel investing is local. Uh, as you can see from the book, I'm a very international person. I speak five languages. Uh, I've lived in eight different countries more than a year. But when it comes to angel investing, uh, you're going to put a small amount of money, 25K, maybe 50K. You're going to do that to 10 or 15 friends, so the, the total is going to be okay. But individually, it's going to be a small investment. Uh, you want to be able to influence uh, the founders and offer them coaching. One of the big advantages to angel investing for the companies that get the money is it comes usually with free advice. Uh, when I give advice to one of the companies invested in, I don't charge anything. Uh, you know, a VC, they're going to line up a bunch of Chris kids that they pay 300000 a year. And so, paradoxically, their advice is going to be much more costly to them. Uh, so, for that, you need local. Because uh, if the investment goes well and nobody needs any uh, advice, that's fantastic. But most of the time, even the things that are doing okay, you can see some things that could help. And if it's local, you just call for a meeting at uh, a cup of coffee somewhere or even a lunch. I'm French native, so I prefer lunches or a cup of coffee or, or bad uh, uh, donuts. 
Uh, and you can be very effective in a very simple and direct way. So that's number one. Number two, uh, and that may be more contentious, uh, you have to realize as angel investors uh, that you are essentially the junior varsity league. The professional <laughs> leagues, they are the VCs. And the VCs all have today, all the big VC firms today have uh, an incubator fund, a startup fund. Uh, good news for entrepreneurs if they can get, you know, because uh, the VC will generously shower th- hundreds of thousands of dollars to the startup they take a fancy on. Although that is going to be strictly in a few select spaces where the VCs have had an enormous wealth of history and experience. So the cloud, uh, enterprise software, uh, today artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, and you know some bubbles like a lot of uh, VCs are venturing uh, healthcare IT, for example. Um, but they know less, and it can be more costly. So as an angel investor, you have to know where you should play. And yeah, you can play the game in enterprise software uh, or uh, in the cloud, but you have to realize that most companies that knock at your doors are probably companies that could not get basically startup money from Kleiner Perkins or Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia and so forth. So they're not going to be the pick of the litter. On the other hand, if you move to areas that can still offer a lot of things like life science, uh, like space, it's a thriving uh, early stage company space, uh, like transportation, you might find some companies that are genuine gems, uh, but outside the scope of the VC community. See, the VC community, you know the expression, a mile wide and an inch deep. The VC community in the last 20 years is the opposite. It's an inch wide and a mile deep. And so <laughs> as an angel investor in a group, we try to move beyond the inch and try to move in areas where we've had personal experience. So I'm an aerospace engineer. I know a little bit about space. I know people who work there. My company was in healthcare IT. So that's another area I know. And I can invest there. I have basically a minimum of knowledge to basically separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's the third criteria, is by definition, angel investors are, you know, people who've had already the professional experience behind them. They, they're people like me. They've had some success professionally. They had a startup that went well, went an exit. They have a little money to, uh, to invest in. And usually... Every one of us has some time of domain expertise. Uh, in my case, it happens to be aerospace. Uh, then at Buzan Hamilton Accenture, I was a global managing partner in charge of energy, utilities, electricity. So I have some knowledge there. And then uh, I started the company in healthcare IT, which means I know the bit of healthcare that deals with information technology in the hospitals. By the way, that's got nothing to do with life science. If I see a life science company that looks good, I have a couple of friends who work for a group called Life Science Angels, and I usually give them a call first because they're a bunch of PhDs in biochemistry, in biotechnologies, in medicine, science, and so forth. So the third point is use the domain expertise. Talk to people before you commit anything who have been in that space because today when the corollaries 
of too many dollars chasing too few companies is you have a lot of companies that get money that maybe they shouldn't receive. In other words, maybe they're not so good. Uh, uh, it was, but there's, even in this day and age, there's usually excellent companies. Uh, I can report that uh, uh, at uh, the last Manos Accelerator, we saw a number of companies, and at least one of them is going to be invited to present uh, at our upcoming uh, quarterly meeting of the Harvard Business School Angels uh, next week. It's in healthcare space, and I mean, it was pretty obvious to me it was very good. I still had a couple of people from my group who know healthcare, and everybody came was like, wow, yeah, this is really, and it's not greedily priced, and uh, hopefully it'll be, as they say in Casablanca, the, beautiful, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> and then uh, four, uh, you know, in this day and age, you've got to pay a little attention to price. You see, and sometimes entrepreneurs don't realize that, but the angels, we're like way upstream. And that means that before we have an exit, and we have to be very patient. I mean, I have a, I have a portfolio of 20 companies. I've only had two had exits and two a bit the dust. So there's 16 that are kind of ambling along, some of them spectacularly well, some of them not so spectacularly well, but most of them, even the ones that are doing the best, require patience and a long time horizon. And most angel investors are there because they enjoy being with entrepreneurs. They enjoy seeing a company make a journey of seven, 10 years from blank sheet of paper to exit. That was the story of my own company, from blank sheet of paper in 2004 to uh, New York Stock Exchange IPO, value company over a billion dollars, 2010. And so you enjoy seeing that with others and counseling. But so that you don't lose your shirt financially, the entry level has to be relatively small because there's a big difference if you have five rounds and you started a company at $3 million pre-deal versus the same story and you put your first money at $10 million pre-deal. Uh, in the first case, if everything goes well, even if there's a ton of dilution, you're likely to at least make up what you invested in and probably have a, a nice four or five multiple exit. In the second case, it's going to be much harder. So we watch valuations. And occasionally I see very, very good companies, uh, but where the founders were, want $15 million per deal, $20 million per deal, I tell them, you're already on the micro VC, mezzanine VC, however you call it, super angel space, but no angel investor will invest in that valuation because, again, uh, given we have to be for the long ride, if you start at such a high level, it's just not going to be very simple. So, everything sure. is local, avoid the fads, avoid the spaces where the VCO predominant, leverage your domain, expertise, space, and industry, and know when to say no if the price is too high and try to enter the reasonable price. You know, these are very simple things and it requires a fair amount, like everything that's simple actually requires skill to implement and make happen. Simplicity is not simple. You can make the counter argument, which I make in my book, that complexity is lazy. It's easy to add complexity to what has been built. To implement <laughs> simple if effective is Challenging, like our framers, the author of a constitution, were the geniuses of their time, no questions asked. And so uh, if you have these simple precepts in angel investing and you follow them with skill and discipline, uh, 
you know, you're likely uh, at least not to lose your money and make a few entrepreneurs happy and successful in the process, maybe make a few bucks. And for angel investors, that's the story. Of course, of course. Etienne, thank you for, so much for coming on the show. As you continue to grow and take your career forward, other than purchasing your book on Amazon, both hardback or Kindle version, where is the best place for people to stay in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing? At uh, Manos, at the Harvard Business School, Alumni Angels. Um, and they can always go on my website, Etienne Defarge, no space, no dot, etiennedefarge.com. Okay, Manos Nation, do not forget your chance to win digital goods and resources on every episode right here on the podcast. It's very simple. You just subscribe to the show on iTunes, and once you've done that, message the word Manos to m.me forward slash Manos Accelerator. Subscribe on iTunes and then message Manos to the website m.me forward slash Manos Accelerator. See you on the next one. Perfect. There you have it. Etienne has written a book, Untangling the USA, The Cost of Complexity and What Can Be Done About It. He has dissected critical sectors in our economy, such as healthcare, energy, finance, government, sports, has lived in over eight countries, traveled extensively, fluent in five languages, led his company to over a $1 billion valuation and went IPO in 2010. Very, very exciting episode. Etienne, thank you so much for breaking down uh, all of these different aspects and untangling for us a bit about what it's like to be an angel investor and how we can best navigate it as startups. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Juan. It was a pleasure to be on your show and I wish Manos the most of success. Very happy to be associated with you guys. 